finished this side of eternity. So it's okay. Can we all say it's okay? Tell, tell the person next to you, it's okay. It's, it's okay. You, it's okay. Go ahead and try that one. Probably won't get the same response. Um, now I'm glad we can come honestly because uh, honestly I didn't know how to hook this, uh, hook this mic up today. I usually have a, a button up shirt. I can just kind of slide it in the, I was like, I spent 20 minutes in the bathroom trying to figure this out. Um, as honestly as I know how. So, let's see if it works. Well, I thought when I, if I put it on backwards, does that mean the words are going to come out backwards? And you won't have a clue what I'm saying. But it's actually not how technology works. So, I, That's almost the end of the jokes. I, there's a few more. If you could just keep that going. That makes me feel better. It, it, it eggs me on a little bit. So uh, the sermon might get a little bit long here. But uh, I, I two weeks ago, I, I quoted a uh, really important uh, poet. Uh, I quoted Bon Jovi. You. I told you that we were halfway through our series uh, in the seven, seven Letters to Society. Uh, I quoted the Oak Ridge Boys, the Thyatira song that they did. Um, so what has he got this week? Who remembers from Life Group? Toby Keith. We'll get to that in time. Next week I'll be standing in the pastoral unemployment line because of all my secular music artists I, I've been quoting, but... Uh, <laughs> With all joking aside, I I, uh, I I love preaching after that song because it gets our hearts ready, gets us in the right, I think, disposition to hear a word from God because we're not coming here uh, all uh, phony and fake and shiny, pretentious, and all those other terrible words uh, that really mean just hypocrisy. Uh, we come here real, we come here authentic, broken sometimes, miserable sometimes, and, and uh, all in need of help. Uh, before I get into the message, we start this message, I do have a, a kind of an important uh, administrative note. Uh, you all know that uh, for weeks now, well, weeks ago, I, I mentioned uh, the need at some point in the future to look at uh, eldership and, and uh, who might fill that role. And I, and I asked all of you to prayerfully consider if God might be calling uh, any of you to that. Um, and, uh, and then no one came forward, so I was like, this is weird. No, I, I uh, I've spoken to a few people, um, and I want to uh, I want to give to your prayerful consideration and thought. Um, I have asked, uh, and they have agreed to at least an, an interim probationary sort of period that they turn out to work out. Um, but uh, Ed Ed Vassell and Rick Dobsick, uh to, to help shoulder some of the weight of the great weight of trying to uh, responsibly lead this church, and, and uh, uh, those two men I trust with my. Uh, with, with everything in me, uh, I've I've known Rick for uh, a number of years now, and I've gotten to know Ed very well. Uh, and uh, of course, there'll be more to come on that more, uh, to affirm them in those in those positions. But I do want you to pray for them as they, as they take on some responsibility uh, with uh, with me for the church. Um, and there'll be an opportunity. So if there's something you don't like about either one of them, you can come tell me. I don't think they I don't think they're the right guy for the job. Uh, you, you just let me know. It, seriously, they are open to. Uh, they're open to uh, people being opposition, people not thinking that they're they're uh, uh, wants to be in that role. So we're gonna uh, work. They're gonna help me out uh, as we go forward. Uh, and if the Lord leads that way, it'll be uh, you'll be allowed to uh, affirm them in that position uh, when the time comes. So uh, do be praying with me uh, and for them as well uh, in those roles. All right, so we are picking back up our pursuit of 2020 vision, and by doing so, we're looking at this, uh, these churches in uh, the book of Revelation, seven letters to seven churches. And as you, you may have noticed the last few weeks, uh, we've seen sort of a progression, not a good progression, you actually might call it a regression, right? 
Uh, so we saw in in Ephesus, we get the next slide up for me. We saw in Ephesus a, a church that's really doing all the right things. They're they're going through all the right motions. They're doing all the right stuff. The one thing that they lacked, and and the risen Christ told them, is that look, you're doing all this stuff. You're kind of doing it robotically. You're doing you're doing it sort of apathetically. You're not your heart's not in it. Who isn't who hasn't been there? You're, you're doing the right stuff, but you're not doing it with the right attitude. And and the risen Christ says to Ephesus, you, look, you you lost your first love. The love that you had at first is gone. The passion is gone. And now replacing that passion is apathy and and just a rote sort of going through the motions. And we saw Smyrna, they're kind of a, uh, out of order here as far as the, the regression goes because they were a church that the risen Christ had nothing negative to say about. Just look, I see you suffering. I know that you're going through this stuff and there's more to follow. I want you to be faithful to the end, even to the point of death itself. And then we had Pergamum, the compromising church. We call them compromising because there's influences from outside the church trying to work its way in the church uh, and affecting the way that they believed, the way that they uh, acted, the way that they conducted themselves as Christians in an unchristian way. And then we had Thyatira. Similar to Pergamum, except that they had compromised. They had allowed not just the influence from the outside, they brought it inside. That's why it's so important when we talk about leadership, we talk about those that should be in these rooms teaching young minds. It's so important that we get the right people in those spots doing those things. Because the world is going to offer all sorts of unhelpful garbage that we don't want in here. And so it's a very important thing that we don't uh, compromise and, and, and even worse, bring it in here and proliferate it in the church. And Thyatira was a church that was doing that. And that brings us to our fifth church, the church at Sardis. A little bit about Sardis. You see the title of the message there, a church of the rearview mirror. That'll become more obvious why that is the case uh, in due time. But um, a little bit about the geography and the situation here at Sardis. We got a map for you. Uh, Sardis, it continues our sort of clockwise, U-shaped descent down to Philadelphia and Laodicea. So we're in Sardis. It's about 30 to 40 miles southeast of Thyatira. It was situated like Pergamum on a hill, an Acropolis, a, a citadel. So this thing sat on top of this 1,500-foot hill. It was said by the ancients that this place is impregnable. We can't, nobody could attack and defeat this place. It's so high up. Uh, on all sides, it's steep. On all sides, it's, it's almost impossible to get up there, uh, much less uh, launch an attack to try to take over. It was said to be impregnable. Well, the significance of this city was one of the most ancient, one of the most wealthy, and one of the most glorious cities in all of Asia Minor. The problem was its glory lay in the past. The good old days. The church of the rearview mirror. Sir William Ramsey was an archaeologist. Actually, he started his career as a skeptic. And if you look him up, you'll find that he did a lot of, uh, he did some of the most important work in archaeology archaeological finds in the New Testament supporting what the New Testament says was found by him, discovered by him. He's a great historian, and he actually began his, he, he began his uh, academic career as skeptic, believing that he would prove all these things wrong. Instead, he became a committed follower of Jesus Christ as a result. And so he, he said of Sardis, in one of his most notable works, he said this, Nowhere was there a greater example of the melancholy contrast between past splendor and present decay. I think a brief history of Sardis will serve for an illustration. 
They were at their height of wealth and power under King Croesus. You may have heard the expression. I hadn't, but I guess it is an expression. As rich as King Croesus. Uh, it was because he was one of, most, one of the most wealthy kings that ever lived on this earth. King Croesus. And it was under his ruling that they came to the height of wealth and power. But he had a blind confidence, not only in his wealth and power, he had a blind confidence in the fact that he was sitting perched on top of this 1,500-foot hill. That nothing can get us. We just keep collecting our wealth and, 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 and making our uh, name known. But along comes Cyrus of Persia in the 6th century B.C. And Cyrus, a great name from history. You probably have heard the name Cyrus of Persia and, and a very important, uh, biblically speaking. But he has an eye to taking out Sardis. And, and uh, so they're, they're watching Sardis. They're watching the way they operate. They're watching all these things. And eventually, one soldier sees another soldier from Sardis. So uh, a Persian soldier sees a soldier from Sardis kind of climbing down this hill and realizes, actually, it's passable. There's this one route that's passable, and I see that soldier flagging it for us, saying, this is how we're going to do it. So under the cover of night, this soldier leads a, a, a detachment of soldiers up to this fortress at Sardis on the top of this hill to find that nobody is watching. Nobody's ready. Nobody is on guard because they are so blindly confident. And why were they blindly confident? Because their leader was blindly confident. It says a lot about leadership. It, it has an effect on the rest of the people, how we lead, how we lead our families, how we lead our churches, how we lead our classrooms. It has an impact on how they're going to operate as well. And so we see this, this leader has a blind confidence in what his ability is, so nobody is standing watch. They come to the top of the hill and find nobody there, and they take it. One fell swoop. They, they overtake Sardis, and King Croesus' reign is over. The next couple hundred years of uh, history for Sardis is kind of blank. We don't know much about it, but we know that this happened again. So under, uh, under Persian rule, Antiochus comes in the 3rd century B.C., so a couple hundred years later. Antiochus comes along and says, I'm going to try to take Sardis. I'm going to try to take Sardis just like it happened before. And again, a soldier sees that path up that mountain. says, that's the way we're going to do it. And he leads a detachment of soldiers up that mountain. And again, they take Sardis. Eventually, it comes under Roman control and remains wealthy but degenerate, a shadow of its former self. Only looking at their glory in a rearview mirror because that's all the glory they're going to find is in the rearview mirror. And this sets us up for a Christian church nestled in this land of laziness and apathy that spelled doom for Sardis twice. The question is, would it spell doom for the church there as well? Would they succumb to the same pressures, the same situation as Sardis did historically? Before we dig into the text to find out, let's go to the uh, Lord in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, a building to meet. And we thank you, Lord, for uh, people that want to meet and love each other and and be a community together. Uh, Lord, And we just ask that you'd you'd guide and direct uh, our future here at Ignite. Lord, that uh, we would follow faithfully whatever you call us to do. Uh, that you would, uh, you would have the most prominent voice in our lives, that we would listen to those things, even the still small voice, and be obedient to it. Lord, prepare hearts for the message today. Prepare uh, minds to receive it. Lord, ears to hear what the Spirit's saying to this church at Sardis and may also be saying to us here at Ignite. Might we learn uh, from this passage, Lord, what you would have us to learn and might we take and apply it to our lives so it's not wasted, Lord. We, we know your word is not returned void. 
And we are thankful for that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so our text is Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And you can feel free to turn there, or we will have the text on the screen as usual. Uh, But it starts off, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. We have here another allusion to the glorified Christ from chapter 1 of Revelation, and more familiar metaphors, seven spirits, seven stars. Well, the seven spirits, you might ask what that is. Um, It's uh, possibly in relation to the seven churches being mentioned, but also uh, possibly because seven is the number of completion. We talked about how seven churches, why was that important? Probably not because there were only seven churches in Asia Minor. There are probably many more, Uh, at least a few more, probably half a dozen or more more, uh, more more than there was yeah, it's, it was more and more than it was before, but I'd uh, love to be able to edit that one out, but uh, we can't, so we'll, we'll move forward. Um, but there are more churches than just the seven that were listed and written to, uh, but the Lord doesn't waste any words, right? And, and so these symbols, especially in the book of Revelation, this apocalyptic literature, symbols mean something. So seven is a number for perfection or completion. And, and probably what that says to us is that these letters to the seven churches are kind of a complete or perfect list of things that we can learn from, uh, things that all churches in all ages and all times and all places deal with. Haven't we Haven't we so far been able to look at every single church and say, man, there's so much there that I can relate to, even though it's not, it's a little bit different in the time frame and context, but I can relate to a lot of things that they're going, going through and dealing with. Well, so also the seven spirits might uh, indicate the fullness of the gifts of the spirit uh, to, the, to these churches. But like I said last week, it's okay to say I don't know, right? I'm thankful for that. It's okay to say you don't you don't know when somebody asks you a question about the Bible and you've been a Christian for 800 years and you should know, but you don't. It's it's all right to, to say you don't know. Uh, I say it more than I want, but uh, when it's the truth, you should just let it out. Here's what we should take from this opening line: the church is the possession of Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. It's His bride; belongs to Him. We were talking in life group about the word doulos, the Greek word. Doulos means uh, bondservant or slave of Jesus. And, and it's interesting to me uh, that uh, so many of the New Testament epistles open up with uh, so-and-so's name, the bondservant, the slave of Jesus Christ. Especially and prominently there is uh, books of James and Jude. If you know anything about the authors of the books of James and Jude, they happen to be the half-brothers of Jesus. And what's interesting about that, and I'll share with what I shared uh, in Life Group, with all of you, is that uh, James and Jude were not believers in Jesus when he was home with them growing up. In fact, they probably thought he was more a lunatic, an embarrassment to the family. So the thinking, rational person has to say, well, what happened? Go ahead and say it. Again, I'm glad you asked. What happened to James and Jude? They encountered the risen Lord. And we're forever changed. Imagine if somebody in your family, we all have at least one crazy family member, right? Don't leave me here by myself. We all have at least one. Hopefully mine's not watching. Uh, but they don't know which one it is, so I'm safe. I'm still safe. But, but imagine that crazy family member passes away and you mourn their loss and you, you, it's upsetting and, it's, and it hurts, but, you, but there's kind of a, a sigh of relief, like crazy talk's over. 
No more, no more King Jesus talk. No more I'm God. I'm the Son of God. It's all over. We can just get, get on with our lives and maybe not be the crazy family in town anymore. But they didn't do that. I ask you to consider, if you're a skeptic here this morning, you are tempted to believe this is all a bunch of garbage. What would change these half-brothers of Jesus' minds? What would change their minds about who Jesus was, was the resurre- his resurrection from the dead. That proved once and for all he was exactly who he said he was. He did exactly what he said he was going to do. Conquered death itself. And that is who this church belongs to. That's comforting to me. I'll be a slave of that master any day of the week. And I hope you can join me in on that. But what does Jesus say to his bride at Sardis? He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. It's a fairly grim summary of the situation, is it not? You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Your reputation can be defined as the beliefs or opinions that are generally held about someone or something. A widespread belief that someone or something has a particular habit or characteristic. The key words there are belief and opinion. Because your reputation may or may not reflect reality at all. And reputation only matters as it does reflect reality. I love this quote by John Wooten. He was, a, he was the coach of UCLA for, I think, uh, a dozen years or so. Any uh, college basketball fans? So if you know John Wooden, he, he was a coach at UCLA. He coached for about 12 years, I think. Uh, he won 10 championships, seven of them in a row. And he knew a little something about winning. But he said this, he said, be more concerned with your character than your reputation because your character is what you really are, while your reputation is merely what others think that you are. Be more concerned about your character than your reputation. I thought so fitting. I read a book uh, a number of years ago, uh, by Pulitzer Prize winning author Marilyn Robinson. The book is called Gilead. Um, and she wrote so well that I was convinced that she was the voice of the 70 year old pastor in the book, who's main, the main uh, character in the book. But I so identified with this, and maybe you can too. Uh, he says this his name is John Ames. He's a f- fictional character, a 70 something year old pastor who's writing a book to uh, his son who's too young to hear some of the things that he wants to say to him. He knows his time is coming, he knows he won't be long for this earth. But he has so much that he wants to say to his younger son and won't be able to. So he says, uh, he writes this, this book as a letter, and it's a great book. If you uh, are, if you like to read and, and uh, like fiction books that are, it's just an incredible book. I don't read much fiction, but I'm glad I read that one. So he says this, the, the, the character says this, I get much more respect than I deserve. This seems harmless enough in most cases. People want to respect the pastor, and I'm not going to interfere with that. But I've developed a great reputation for wisdom by ordering more books than I ever have time to read and reading more books by far than I learned anything useful from. Except, of course, that some very tedious gentlemen have written books. This is not a new insight, but the truth of it is something you have to experience to fully grasp. And he goes on later on to say, Often enough, when someone saw a light burning in my study long into the night, it only meant that I had fallen asleep in my chair. My reputation is largely the creature of the kindly imaginings of my flock, whom I choose not to disillusion, in part because the truth, the truth had the kind of pathos in it would bring on sympathy in its least bearable forms. Get a reputation. And we, we pastors get some reputations, usually bigger than we are, which is why I'm so quick to remind you week in and week out that I'm just one of you, uh, broken mess just like you, 
throughout the week, and we're in this together. But I understand I can relate to it. Reputation is what people believe you to be, and character is who you really are. But we rightly esteem reputation as important. It takes a long time to build a reputation. It takes what? Destroy it. Moments, right? Seconds. And a reputation can be gone. That's why we rightly tell children to guard their reputation. It shouldn't matter what people think of you. It should matter more who you really are. But if it doesn't reflect reality, it's just a reputation and a false one at that. It's a deception. It's a manipulation of the facts. Question for you. Have you ever been praised for something you didn't do? <laughs> the guilt all over your faces. You've been praised for something you didn't do, and you're like, what, what do I say? This happens more often than I care to admit, but it, it's happened to me, and it's probably happened to you. But somebody comes up to you with an answer to a prayer request that they had, and they expressed this, uh, this need for prayer in a certain situation, they, and they came to you, and they said, would you pray for me about this? And you, with every good intention, said, yes, I will. And you went about your business, and you completely forgot. And they come back to you. They say, thank you so much for praying. And you just want to be anywhere but where you are at that moment. Because to tell them the truth is that you forgot. You meant to, but you forgot. So I have a habit. I uh, Anymore, somebody asks me to pray, I'm like, let's pray right now. That way, I will make good on that. We'll pray right now. And I just had this conversation with Tammy and Jeremy a few weeks ago. Uh, that the time is now. When you have a prayer, because the time to pray is now. Uh, not to wait and say, well, the time's right. I'll, you know, I'll get my prayer rug out and we'll, we'll, we'll do the thing. But, um, the time is now to pray. Uh, but we've done that. We, we, somebody, maybe somebody says, hey, thanks for the gift. It wasn't yours that you gave. You know, so we, we've all, we've all, uh, accrued reputations at times in our lives that we didn't actually earn. And somehow Sardis pulls off convincing people that they're alive when they're actually dead. So this idea of alive versus dead. What is a, an alive church versus a dead church? Well, for now, all I'm going to say is it's a slow erosion. You get from alive to dead before you even know it. But it's a slow erosion. It's an atrophy. You take incremental steps. A couple weeks ago, we talked about uh, our adoption agency and how uh, they took incremental steps towards Ultimately, what became the idea of buying children and selling them. How did they get there? They didn't start out writing their charter. They didn't start out writing their bylaws. Say, we will look for vulnerable people in vulnerable areas of the world. We'll, we'll take children and we'll sell, we'll sell them to rich Westerners. Well, it was a little convenience here, a little convenience there, a little uh, a cutting of the corner here, a little cutting of the corner there, and we get there. So uh, a, a church that's alive one day can find itself, after no time, a dead church. And this is what happened at Sardis. It's easy to look alive when you compare yourself to the pagan culture all around you. You say, I'm not doing that stuff. But are we an alive church? The risen Christ is not still, it's still not too late for them. Jesus offers them a way out in a five-fold command in verses 2 and 3. He says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. He starts off, wake up, be ready, watch. There's no, no more frequent command in the New Testament than for us to watch and be ready. I remember a, a time in basic training. We were digging these, what, what's called a hasty fighting position. And you're, you have a 360 degree range fan of, of security you need to pull. And, and we, we dig down so that the earth becomes our protection against, uh, 
ammunition coming in. It's just a training environment. We spent about two weeks out there, and so we're tired. And in the middle of the night, when you're in your hasty fighting position, laying down, I might add, with a, with a heavy helmet on your head, laying on your M16. It doesn't sound comfortable, but I promise you at 3 in the morning, in your second hour of guard duty, it's real comfortable. And it's real easy to fall asleep. And I, I recall a time when, when uh, I did fall asleep. I was on guard duty, and I fell asleep. My part of that security fan was weak and vulnerable because I fell asleep. So what did I do? Well, I woke up two hours later, and I told the guy next to me, I said, hey, uh, wake the guy up next to you because yours is already, already pulled yours for you. He's like, oh, thanks, man. I appreciate that. And the, didn't tell him the truth as I fell asleep, slept through both of our guard duties, and now the next guy's up. Uh, but the point is I, didn't, I fell asleep, and I was no longer watching. I was no longer ready. Just like uh, historically, the people of Sardis were not ready for anything. They had fallen asleep metaphorically. It was time to wake up and be ready. The thing that historically was neglected by Sardis. We are in enemy territory the whole of our stay here on earth. We, we, we are not allowed at any point in time to let our guard down here on this earth. You know that? It's made obvious by the, the next two commands are strengthen and remember. Both of them mean, they're slightly different grammar used, but they both mean do this now and never stop doing this. So be on guard, be always on guard, be ever on guard, don't ever let your guard down. That's the command here by the risen Christ. Strengthen what remains, shore up what's left of your defenses and has largely atrophied. What happens to a muscle not used over time? It turns weak. It eventually just quits on you. And atrophy is a slow erosion. How many of us dads Woke up one day, 20 years removed from high school, thinking we're still as big and bad as we thought we were in high school. And you get under that bench and you start trying to throw some weight around. Next thing you know, somebody's pulling it off your neck because you can't, you can't lift that anymore. A shade of your former self. The glory day is now long behind you. Strengthen what remains and remember. This is a present imperative, which means don't ever not remember what you have received and heard. When the cross becomes too familiar to you, go back. When when the sacrifice Jesus made on that cross gets too familiar to you, go back. When the pain that he endured on your account gets too familiar to you, go back. And remember, and always remember, and never don't remember what that cost him. That great cost. When it gets too familiar, go back and remember. And keep, keep that which you have received and heard. Now we are all, this is not just the job of a pastor, a preacher, a teacher, to be guardians of the truth once delivered to the saints. It's all of our jobs. And the fifth command here is repent. And as with any sin, it's a change of mind, change of action. You change your mind so you can change your action. Both those concepts are in play here. I used to think this on this hand, but now I think this. And because I now think this, I now do this. My, my, my beliefs have, have informed my actions and are now my actions are different because of what I believe. I've repented of that thing that's been brought to my attention. I've been sleeping on a job. I've been lax in my commitment. I've been content with my reputation and allowing it just to be that, just a reputation. If that's the case for you, as it was in Sardis, wake up. 
Remember what you received. Keep it and repent for having ever turned away from it. The question is, what's at stake? The rest of verse 3, If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. I love the conditional statements like this in Scripture. You know, you don't have to let this happen. If, if you don't wake up, this is what's going to happen. He tells you the rules of the game before you play. If you don't do this, this is going to happen. But if you do this, this is going to happen. We had a, uh, recently we found out we had a parent-teacher conference for our youngest. And uh, we found out that he does a lot of crying at school. Like every day. And I said, really, every, every day he cries at school? Every day? And they're like, yeah, every day. I said, what, what makes him cry? When we ask him to do stuff he doesn't want to do, like, well, I do that too. Is that, is that not right? Is that wrong? Uh, Greg and I do that at work sometimes. We cry when we want to do something. Um, but I, I looked at Debo. I said, look, hey, Debo, I said, you love to watch movies. He loves, anybody who knows Debo, loves, he know, knows he loves to watch movies. It's his thing. As soon as he gets up in the morning, sometimes at 4 in the morning, there's a, there's a movie on the TV downstairs. He's figured out how to do it. Uh, and so we've made we've we've uh, made an agreement with them that from now on, if you cry at school, you're going to come home. There's going to be no movies. But you're in charge. But I said, hey, who's in control here? And he says, rightly, I am. Uh, if you don't wake up, this is going to happen. But if you wake up, this other thing will happen. Historically speaking, it was the rival powers that took over Sardis, but now the crushing reality of the coming judgment of the risen Christ is the thing that they should be fearful of. As we said last week, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. You don't want to come into contact in judgment of, uh, by Jesus without first being rightly oriented to him. It is indeed a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But not all hope is gone. Not for all of them anyway. He says in verse 4, Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. In James chapter 1, verse 27, a verse we most remember probably for the directive for us to care for orphans and widows, and it's right for us to remember that verse for that reason. But how does that verse finish? Perfect religion undefiled before the Father is this, that we visit orphans and widows in their distress, and we keep ourselves unstained from the world. We like the social stuff. We like the the social uh, projects we're supposed to be about, but sometimes somebody says, a holiness is still a thing that God expects, and we're like, "Ah, none for me, thanks. I don't want to be that uh, hoity-toity sort of uh, uh, super holy roller Christian that has to live their life a certain way. But I think we all have sort of a... uh, bastions in our lives that we kind of safeguard. I'm going to give all this to Jesus, but I'm going to keep this thing over here to myself. Maybe it's a movie you shouldn't have watched, a book you shouldn't have read, a thing that you let into your mind that had no business being there. But again, not all have succumbed, and and Jesus sees them. Not only does Jesus see them, he knows who they are, he knows them by name. He says, there still have a few names in Sardis. And isn't that a comfort that Jesus, the risen Christ, knows you by name? He, he doesn't just see a map of people on a blip on a radar. They're doing the right thing. Not sure who they are, but they're doing the right thing. I go to work, and we have these uh, uh, these meetings sometimes. And, and it's, I, I can't blame them, this uh, senior leadership team. Most of them have to look at your badge to know what your name is. Even though you're in meetings with them, because they see a lot of people. I get it. But, but even those people who employ you don't know your name sometimes. 
But the risen Christ, he knows your name. And he sees your obedience, he sees your commitment, he sees your faithfulness to the grind when it's difficult, when it's not easy. When you're up against it, you're in a place where people are just, they're apathetic, they're lazy, they're not on their guard, they're not on their game, and they don't care. But he sees you and he sees you by name when you're being faithful to that call. So don't stop that. Don't let what everyone is doing around you inform what you do. You know what you are to do because you have access to this book. Most of us have a number of translations and copies of this book that by and large sit on a shelf. As soon as we get home on Sunday and it comes back off the shelf next Sunday. We need to be in this book so we know what God's directives for us are on a regular basis. Verse 5, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. They had a practice in the ancient world of somebody who was guilty of some heinous crime was going to be executed. They had a practice of blotting their name out of the books, the census data, as if they never even existed. And that may not sound like much to you, but imagine your complete legacy being wiped out as if you never lived. And that is a, that is a daunting thing. But the risen Christ is saying, look, for the one who conquers, the one who is faithful, I will never blot your name out of this book that I keep. I see you and I see you by name. And I'll confess your name before my Father. Matthew chapter 10 verse 32 says, Whoever confesses me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father. There's just something about it. I feel good if Jesus is bringing my name to God the Father. As I endorse this guy, I feel okay. Don't be ashamed to admit or confess the name of Jesus to the people around you. It might be the only person that ever does. Think about it. We, we live in a world that's saturated with the idea of religion and no, have, no one has a clue about it. You ask anybody walking by on the street, who is Jesus? And you'll, you'll get, if you ask 10 different people, you get 10 different answers. They don't know. So if you're not speaking his name, they're not hearing it. And if they are hearing it, they're hearing some fable, some mythology related to Jesus. That isn't true. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the uh, churches. So what does this have to tell us? How does this inform us? How do we improve our vision going forward, learning from the church at Sardis? Well, historically, we have two, these two things. They failed to watch, and they were lulled to sleep. That's the first thing. The second thing is this, they, their glory lay in the past. They were a shade of their former selves by the time of John's writing. They were wealthy but unimportant. They lost any sort of importance to who they were. The church at Sardis, likewise, was a dead and dying church. And so there's a number of things that I've taken from this text, uh, things for us to avoid. They were a church whose spiritual muscle was in need of strengthening. You know, we get to a point, and we're still a young church here at Ignite, under seven years, right, right around seven years, six and a half, seven years. Oh, that's a young church. That's a very young church. We're still very much in the building phase of becoming what we are going to be. But then what happens? By the end of the year, I'll just be honest with you, I hope to have a lot of things kind of just going. 
and, and we're looking to sustain those things. But the problem with it is if we get just, just get into sustainment mode, we get lulled to sleep. Because we, we built a product that people out there largely will come in and buy, and we'll just keep going. We'll just keep the machine going. And the problem is that we'll lose our love that we had at first. Right? We go from building phase to sustaining phase. And after sustaining phase comes atrophy phase. You stop using your muscle to, to build. And you're, you're now just, just going through the motions, if that at all. And after the atrophy phase comes the painful reconstruction phase. One of the marks of a dying church is spiritual muscles in need of strengthening. The second thing is this, uh, one whose best days are found in the rearview mirror. The church of the rearview mirror. Uh, I will never, 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 when is it again? I will never lead us to be a church that looks at the, the good old days. Looks in the rearview mirror and says, I'm so glad at all we've accomplished. There's still a mission moving forward. I want to be a part of that. I'm, I want to be, the rearview mirror is supposed to be small, right? The window you're looking through when you're driving is nice and big. You're supposed to be taking in the future. we got a job to do. And I've been a part of groups that are so obsessed with the idea of looking at how many anniversaries they can stack one on another. And this is some total of my whole game as a, as, as a church is that we, we've, we've survived for 50 years. We've done nothing for the kingdom, but we've survived another year. That will not be here at Ignite. There are people outside of these walls dying not knowing Jesus. That's on us. That's our job. We can't afford to be looking in the rearview mirror, but that's what so many churches, and if they're doing that, if they're more about what they've done in the past and what they plan on doing going forward, they are a dead or dying church. There isn't any exception to that. They might not be dead yet, but they are dying if they're looking in the rearview mirror. We cannot afford to be a church that does that. One whose best days are found in the rear view. I want our best days to be ahead of us. I want us our most vibrant days to be in the future. I would love to pass the baton of pastoring this church 40 years from now off to the next passionate young preacher and say, take it further than I could. That's what this is about. Building God's kingdom. If we're not awake, if we're not watching for it, apathy and sustaining and maintaining will crawl up that 1,500-foot precipice. It'll climb up, it'll climb up, and it'll, it'll destroy us before we know it. Some other marks of a dead or dying church. One that is so focused on the inside that it can't be focused on the outside. Who's out there that needs to be Showing the love of Jesus. This is the uh, sin of the omission of the great commission. One of the chief things that we are called to do as Christians is to make disciples of those who aren't yet disciples of Jesus Christ. We can't do that just being glad to sit in here and love on each other, which I want to do. We, we do that every week. And you guys do it so well. I see so much love being shared, hugs being given, tearful prayers being offered for each other. But that can't be where it ends. Because that's supposed to be shared with those people out there. To be brought in here. To be loved just like that. The sin of omission, the great commission. The internal focus versus the external focus. The non-missional focus. 
where we look at member preferences over God-ordained priorities. I don't have a whole lot of time or interest in all of our individual preferences. I have a great interest in what God is prioritizing and getting after that. Because we got this one life to live, and I don't want to be looking in the rearview mirror. I don't want to say, man, our glory days are behind us. I don't want to say, man, it was so good when. It will be so good when. Because the future is still in front of us, and God still has a job for us to do. And the church doesn't have to be full of those people in order to kill it. A simple majority sometimes is all it takes to establish that prognosis of this church is terminal. As I close, I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. But that's the dead and dying church. What, by contrast, is a church fully alive? What what does it look like to be a church fully alive? I'm going to shamelessly plug a sermon that I preached here. Uh, I think it was the first week as a a pastor here. Um, I, I called it What to Expect When You're Expected. It wasn't clever then, and it's not clever now. I can tell. But the point of the message was to tell you what you can expect from me as your pastor. And I offered you four things that I want to suggest this morning, if we can latch on to these four principles, these four pillars, uh, that we will not ever be called a church that is dead or dying. The first one was this, is that we're founded on Scripture. One of the primary methods, and I don't want to minimize what the Spirit does in our lives, but, but I want to say one of the primary modes of communication in basic truths is God's Scripture, what He's revealed to us in His written Word. And this book is full of reminders to watch. So how can we ever be caught lazily not watching if we're always in this book being told, hey, watch? The second thing was this. We're found in the scripture and we're going to be led by the Spirit. We're not going to grow apathetic or atrophied in our routine or our comfort zones because we're going to be always looking for what God is calling us out of those comfort zones and into new things he's calling us to do. being aware of our tendencies towards cruise control and just sustaining or maintaining the machine that we've already built. We found it on Scripture, led by the Spirit, always looking to exalt the risen Christ. And the way we most exalt, when you, when you want a parent to want to be respected by their children, what do, you, what do you ask from them? A simple obedience. And Jesus has called us to follow him, which requires that our feet are moving. We can't be standing still and weeds grow around us. We have to have our feet moving in order to follow Jesus. And ultimately, it's all about glorifying the Father. We often pray. We say it's all the glory to the Father. It's said in the Westminster Catechism, it's the chief end of man to glorify the Father. And a sure, sure way to keep our lampstand from being removed. Let's not just have a reputation of being alive. Let's be fully alive. By a continued commitment to these four pillars, and especially to being led by the Spirit and all that He calls us to. Lord, we thank You for our time here this morning. We thank You, Lord, for the reminder of what it means to to be alive, fully alive to You. As a church body, Lord, we we need direction. We need your 
wisdom beyond what we have in ourselves. Now, we confess, we admit defeat before we get started, if you're not in this. But Lord, we know that you are. And what confidence that we have moving forward into a world that largely rejects this message. But it doesn't matter. Because we know the end of the story. Lord, help us to be faithful to the call. Help us to be faithful to communicate your name, make you famous in this area and beyond. May we never rest on a reputation or what we used to do or what we did back then, Lord, but always be looking for the next thing you have for us. Help us be faithful to it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and join us, please?